So one of the things that we didn't think through was someone to click through slides because you've had them on your phone for the last several weeks. So Maggie, my eight-year-old, is doing it today, and she asked me to hold up this sign that says now when it's time to go to the next one. So, And I said, well, maybe I'll just look at you. She's like, well, I pulled a page out of my koala notebook, and there's only a few left. So it's really a stewardship issue. So y'all are going to bear with me as I do this, but not yet. That's just practice. Okay. Um, all right, so we're going to start today with a few more questions for kiddos. So kiddos, can I have your eyes and your ears again? All right, here we go. These are just for you. Adults will ask you some questions here in a minute too. But um, Okay, kids, what comes to mind when you think of a king or maybe a queen? Like what do they look like? What are they doing? What comes to mind when you think of a king or queen? A crown? Good. You don't have to raise your hand. We're just going to shout it out. Go for it, Arnett Table. A robe with leopard's design on it. It's very specific. Yes, sir. King George, King George from Hamilton. Okay, very nice. All right, what else comes to mind? Anyone over here? What do you think of when you think of a king or a queen? What are they doing? What do they look like? Eating soup. Eating soup. <laughs> yep, so what I always think of as well. Do what? What about a knight? Well, we're going to save a knight for another day. We're just going to talk about kings for now, okay? Okay, that's not exactly a king either. So anything else come to mind when you think of kings? Uh, king George's crown from Hamilton. Okay, so again, we got crown. So so are they are they a lot of wealth there, a lot of power? King yeah, are they usually pretty clean and 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 mighty? Yeah, I think so. Okay, so uh, same questions. I'm, I'm feeling some risk because we keep asking questions, but here's a little bit of risk. What do you think of when you think of a servant? Are they the same or different? Or what do you think? Of, what, do you, what do you picture in your mind? What are they doing? Yeah. Brown robes. Brown robes. Okay. Probably because some dirt, right? Do what? Like, like black dress on them. A black dress on them? Okay. So are they, are they cleaner or dirtier than the king or queen? Way dirtier. Way dirtier. Yeah, Piper? What are you saying, huh? Yes, ma'am. Driving the coach. Driving the coach, yeah. Yeah, so so the king and queen isn't the one driving the coach, right? They're taking the king and queen somewhere. Yeah, Davis? All right, we're going to move on from Hamilton, but that is a great that is a great thing, right? The servants were not as crazy as King George, okay? Being, being say it again. Being subjugated by the tyrant king. Wow, yeah. Okay, so another question. Can you think of any stories where a servant becomes a king? Like in books or movies or anything? The sword and the stone. Sword and the stone, okay. Any others? Literally, as I was typing that question, I turned on Spotify. My kids had apparently had it, and so Aladdin started playing. I was like, okay, well, that's, that's a thing. Okay, yeah. Uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, okay. We'll go with it, yeah. David and Goliath's story. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Cinderella, Cinderella, kind of. Yeah, she became a princess, right? She was a servant and became a princess. But in all of these stories, maybe with the exception of the sword and the stone, because I haven't thought about that one in a lot of years, um, are they, do they do that by their own power, or does somebody come in and make them the other thing? Like Cinderella needs a fairy godmother, right, to help out. Um, Aladdin needs a genie. They're all like mystical, weird characters that come in as I'm playing this out in my mind. Like someone comes in in these stories and makes the servant a king, takes them from one point to the other. They they can't just decide one day they're going to be a king, right? Something has to help them get from one to the other. All right, last question, kiddos. Can you think of a story where a king became a servant? Yeah. 
Yeah. Robin Hood? Ro- mm, I don't think he actually is a king, is he? Because King Richard's the king. Yeah, it's like a prince. King, king Richard! That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Affirmation from the back. <laughs> yeah. Prince and the pauper. Okay. That's right. See, it's, it's harder, though, to think of these stories, right? There's, it's not as cool of a story when a king becomes a servant. It's way cooler in our minds when a servant becomes a king. So kids and grown-ups, too, I want you to stick with me today because the story that Paul tells, the apostle Paul tells in today's verses is the story of a king becoming a servant and then God making him a king again. Is Jesus a king, you guys? Jesus is a king, right? And he made himself a servant. But guess what God the Father did? God the Father made him a king again. We're going to see that he was highly exalted. He's the king of the universe. All right, so we're in Philippians 2. There was our our setup for the day. So we're in Philippians 2. And and this is a beautiful poem that Paul writes. Some of your your Bible translations may have the verses inset as if it is a poem. Um, Others may not, but this is a poem. This became a hymn in the first century church, just like the Psalms were a hymn that were sung uh, among God's people before Jesus uh, came and walked the earth, okay? Um, So last question, though, and this this can be all of us, okay? Grown-ups help out with this one a little more, maybe even. Um, But for context, okay? Paul builds this verse around a lot of Old Testament images and verses. He builds this poem around a lot of Old Testament images and verses. And so, just, does anything come to mind? It's okay if you can't think of any, totally fine. But if, if, if anything comes to mind, what's an Old Testament image or something that God puts in the earth that God designed specifically to reflect himself to the world? What are some things from the Old Testament that, that God put in the earth to, to show himself to the world? Anything come to mind? Yeah. Humans, absolutely. That's the greatest first answer. He created all of creation. Then he gave humans a special charge and said, I'm going to create you in my image for my glory to steward the earth, to take care of the earth for me. Great job. What else? Anything else that God put in the earth? Yeah. Columns of fire and columns of Columns of fire and columns of clouds. And then also salt at one point. Yeah. That God showed himself to the earth. He led his people by night, by, by fire, and then by, during the day by clouds. So they could see him always, always in front of them. Yes, ma'am. Uh, apples. apples. How do you think apples remind us of God? Because they grow on trees. They grow on trees. Because, and who makes trees? God does. That's right. So apples grow on trees, and God made trees. Yeah. I just thought of a way that an apple is similar to God. How is an apple similar to God? There you go. There's three parts but one apple. We're getting Trinitarian theology on a fruit tree tonight. Absolutely. Okay. Um, Abraham is is called to be God's family and and, and to fill the earth and and, and to fill the nation of Israel with God's lineage. Israel is to be God's servant nation and on and on we could go. But here's the thing. Do any of these, do any of these fully show us God? A hundred percent. Do they show us who God is? No, they were all just showed us pieces of God. They're all foreshadows. They're all kind of a a holding pattern until God sent one who did fully reflect God to the world, and that is our Lord Jesus. And, and, and the, in, in Jesus, this is what Paul's going to celebrate today, we see the fullness of God's image more than Adam and Eve. Jesus, even more than the temple, the temple just came to mind, even more than the temple, Jesus was God's full and incarnate presence among the earth 
today. Jesus was God's true and firstborn son. He was the fulfillment of Abraham's lineage. He was a better servant than Israel ever was, and, and on and on we could go. And so through this lens that Jesus is a better picture of God than anything before him or anything after him, it's no surprise. We're going to see a lot of Jesus in tonight's verses as Paul celebrates Jesus as the fulfillment of everything that God is, the pinnacle of Philippians and the pinnacle of God's promise. So fast forwarding uh, to first century, this poem, one, one last thing, also celebrates this countercultural vision of power. Okay, we'll come back to this theme throughout the verses, but I just want you to notice it as I read Philippians. It's a picture of Jesus as the highly exalted one that flies in the face of Caesar, of Alexander the Great, of, of any supposedly highly exalted persons of that day, and still does the same today. But here's what God's going to show us in this poem, okay? Is that in Jesus' humility, Jesus is the exalted pinnacle of God's history-long power and promise. Let me say it again. In the example of Jesus' humility, we see Jesus exalted as the pinnacle of God's history-long promise and power. All right, so let's read this text. We're going to start in verse 6 of Philippians 2. Verse 6 starts with the word who, but in verse 5, Paul tells us the who is Christ Jesus. So we're just going to replace who with Christ Jesus. That's on the screen. If you can't find Philippians in your Bible, we're going to read this whole poem, Philippians 2, starting in verse 6. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Next, next slide. So, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We'll get there. All right. What has God the Spirit caused to stand out to you? What, what, what did you hear, read, see as you read this week that, that God might have you share as, as we learn with one another? What stands out in these verses? Let's start with that. He made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. He, he was everything. He made himself nothing. Good. Anything else stand out? eventually every knee will bow. Every knee. Yeah, that's a lot. Not one will not bow. That's a pretty big claim. So, so here's the form of this poem, okay? Uh, is that Jesus takes three steps into humility. And each of those steps is greater than the previous step, okay? Then God takes three steps into Jesus' exaltation. And, and similarly, each exaltation is, is greater than the previous exaltation, okay? Next. There we go. Okay, so uh, here's kind of how this form, how this poem flows, okay? And I, I put it in, in this kind of spiraling downward. Each one takes a, a further step into humility, okay? So, so verse 6 and 7 are Jesus' first step into humility. I'm not going to read it again, but, but going through it, Jesus is the very form of God. Okay, he has the character and the mind and the power of God. He is God. He is in every way equal with God the Father. 
That's the starting point. That is Jesus' right and full position, and that's been who Jesus is since before Genesis 1, before the creation of the earth. But rather than grasping for that power or clinging to it with an undying grip, even that this is mind-blowing to me, even though it was rightly his for all of eternity, he chose to, to, to release it. He chose to willingly empty himself of that power and of the, of the fullness of his right as king, willingly emptied himself and instead took the position of a servant. And look how verse 7 describes that posture of a servant. It's the likeness of what? Of man, of, of, of humankind. Now remember the very first Old Testament image that we said? One of the first images God put in all of creation to show us himself was... Adam and Eve. It was people. And in Genesis 1, how, how were Adam and Eve to reflect the image of God? Theirs was to steward creation. They were to be God's servants and to display God's image to creation, but they were carrying out God's will. They were carrying out God's rule and reign on God's behalf. That's what a servant does, right? They're not the ones who are in the coach. They're the ones driving the coach. They're taking the king where he needs to go. We heard from the back back here a little bit ago that the servant was the one who was carrying out whatever the king, whatever the master, if you will, tells him or her to do. And so Adam and Eve and all people created after Adam and Eve were, were rightly to be God's servants. But these verses show us that Jesus was God's greatest servant. He came. He took the form that was expected of all of God's creation. He filled the form, not of the king, but of what we were all called to be and what all of us failed to be. What Adam and Eve failed to be. Jesus took the form of a servant by filling the likeness of a human. He didn't exploit his position as king of the universe, even though it was rightly his. Instead, he left his throne and became the greatest human, the greatest servant to ever walk the face of the earth. That's just just unheard of. One one British author that I read this week said, just, just painted this contrast. He said, through history, monarchs put themselves on pedestals, right? This is this is what's common. This is what we expect. Monarchs put themselves on pedestals, they exploit their high position. Monarchs throughout the ages, he says, were indulgent, and they used their position to pursue wealth and status and pride. If we're, tr- if we're, if we're honest and we think deeply about this for even two seconds, that's not just true of, of monarchs. That's true of anyone who ever tastes any power at all, is it not? Like, think of the, the, the politicians of our day, folks who, who make themselves in the entertainment industry or just self-made people with money, or even folks that we would not necessarily say, oh, that's a ton of power, but, but think of folks in your workplace once they taste power. Think of the PTA, and once those people taste power sometimes, there is a grasp and a clinging to and a never letting go and a death stare if you try to take it away from me. Like, this is what we do, is it not? Even if you don't have any real power We grasp for it. We cling to it. We never let it go. But the author continues, if that's what through history monarchs do, Jesus is a different king and a better God. He released the power he had. That was Jesus' first step into humility. And honestly, we could pause there. Like if that were all Jesus did, that would be more than he had to do. That would be enough. 
But Jesus took two more steps into humility. He didn't just stop at becoming a human, at becoming God's servant. The extent of his servanthood is seen in the next couple of verses, in the second and third steps. And they're kind of back to back. Look at verse 8. By being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of what? To the point of death, and even death on a cross. So again, follow me. His first step into humility is becoming a human and a servant. His second step is his 100% obedience to God the Father. As earth's greatest servant, he served God to the point of death. And then his third step into humility was that that death was not just any death. Because we're all going to face that one day. His was a death on a cross. And and so just like Jesus' humility might be contrasted with worldly power, here, again, Paul is contrasting Jesus' obedience with Adam's and Israel's and and all of ours who are disobedient. If if Adam and Eve's role was was to reflect God back to the world, they utterly failed. If theirs was to be obedient to God, they utterly failed. If Israel was to be God's nation of servants carrying out his rule and reign and displaying God's goodness to the world, they utterly failed. We do the same thing over and over and over again. We reject God's headship, do we not? Jesus' second step into humility reversed human disobedience to God. Through his very human life, Jesus willingly humbled himself as an example to do what God led him to do, to say the words he heard from his father. He tells us this in the Gospel of John. Not 99.8% of the time, 100% of the time, he was perfectly obedient to God the Father. And the culmination of that perfect obedience, his death on a cross, in obedience to God and for our benefit is his third step into humility because it is not an exaggeration to say, and you can see this in many history books, that crucifixion was the, here's how it's worded, the ultimate humiliation in first century Rome. It's a poignant word as we're talking about humility, isn't it? The crucifixion, death on a cross was the ultimate humiliation in first century Rome. It was, it was the death reserved for the scum of the earth for the traitors to their masters, whether Caesar or in the household, for the filth of society. The cross represented everything that Jesus was not. It was public and ultimate pain and ultimate shame. It was extreme humility. And so Jesus went from throne of the universe to the ultimate humility of the cross. The highest of highs to the lowest of lows. Kids, his servantness, his service was even lower than some of the things we described. He was more than just dirty. He was more than just serving other people. He went to the cross and died for us to serve God and to serve us. Or at least so it seemed. At the cross, in truth, Jesus bore the fullest marks of love 
in all of history on his hands. He laid down everything and he laid down his very life for God and for people. And so it seems like a tragic end. And, and it's easy for us to look back and to know, yeah, there's a but coming in. There is. But, but I don't know if we dwell on this enough. The ultimate humiliation of Jesus. What would it have been like for his followers those first few days thinking that everything that they had walked through was for naught? They had just seen their master go into the ultimate form of humiliation and they did not understand what was going on. If we can put ourselves in their shoes, it changes what happens next. So the but that is coming can't just be familiar for us. And we can't go, yeah, 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 yeah. Because we miss some of the depth of what Jesus went through. These verses, again, show that in Jesus' example of humility, that's the first half, that's what we've talked about, Jesus is exalted as the pinnacle of God's history-long promise and history-long power. And that is where we go next, because there is a great reversal here. Because after Jesus' three steps into humility, seen in the first three verses, the next three verses show God giving Jesus three steps into exaltation. Excellent. Thank you. And I've intentionally put it backwards here because I want us to just kind of picture this going down and then coming back up. And so verse 9 is at the bottom. I recognize how backwards that is. Don't get confused. But I just want to read these to us because we see pretty quickly how Jesus' exaltation is carried out. Verse 9. Therefore, God has exalted him and, second, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Third, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it's not quite as linear as it looks. The, the, the humiliation steps were a little bit linear. It's not quite as linear here, but the point is that Jesus was exalted more highly than the lows to which he was humbled. Does that make sense? He was, he was more highly exalted than the lows to which he was humbled. He left the throne of heaven for like 33-ish years. In all of history, he's ruling and reigning there, except for those 33 years. He was more highly exalted than the brief time he was humbled. Similarly, people killed Jesus. That's the ultimate humiliation, but... But Jesus didn't stay dead. He's more highly exalted. You know what the word exalt means? Yes, ma'am. I was about to say, I, I looked up the Greek on that. Yeah. And it's not just exalted where we think of that word like uh, the Lion King or whatever word is. Yeah, Simba. Yeah. yeah. So, no, it means um, exalted the highest rank beyond measure, lifted up with pride. There so you it go. Says here he was highly exalted means. He was exalted to the highest rank, beyond measure, absolutely. Exalted also means just to raise up. And so I want to come back to what Carol said, but, but in, in an earthly sense, Jesus literally was exalted by God the Father through the power of God the Spirit in that he did not stay dead, but he was exalted, raised up from death to life. He was raised. But again, God didn't stop there. That would have been enough. He's back to life. All the promises of a Messiah are fulfilled. That, that would have been enough. On, God, on one hand, God the Father literally raised God the Son. But then Carol's absolutely right. On the other hand, and in a much greater sense, God the Father raised and exalted Jesus and restored him to the throne that he left in humility. 
Jesus walked for a few years the world that he created. He died to serve God and to serve us. But where is he now? We don't think about this a lot, do we? The Apostles' Creed, where we rest a lot of our theology on, tells us that he's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Where is he? He's back on his throne. That's where Jesus is today. He came and walked this earth in humility and was crushed by the powers that be. And he is sitting back on his throne where he was for history before that and where he will be for history going forward forever. Jesus is in his rightful place. Jesus' church is reigning as king, not just someday in the future, but he's literally there reigning as king right now. Matt, last week when he introduced kind of this, this train of thought that's going to take us through next week, uh, mentioned, and, and he, I told him this week, this week he almost mentioned this as, as kind of an aside, but it's this one phrase that just I haven't been able to get out of my head all week long. He mentioned that as citizens of heaven, which is a term Paul used in last week's text, as citizens of heaven, we get to bring a heavenly culture wherever we go. And again, that's just that's a, a beautiful image that I haven't been able to let go this week. By God's spirit, Jesus lives in us and empowers us to reflect God's countercultural view of power and people as well that flies in the face of any other view of power and people. Because in the world's view, power is what we attain and people is what we use to get there. And when we bring a heavenly culture, we get to see something utterly different as we pursue Christ-like obedience, as we live for, for a better king. This is why holiness and unity, which Matt mentioned last week and where Paul brings us back next week, is so vital. If we're going to embody Jesus' example and God's view of power and people in the face of all the other worldviews, then we get to pursue obedience and we get to live for a better king than any other in the world. We get to live out a better citizenship than any other in the world. We get to live as part of a better family than any other in the world. And we get to live a better story than any other in the world. In other words, wherever and, and whenever unity and humility and holiness that Matt talked about last week, wherever those things win the day, then a heavenly culture is created. Then, then, then we get to live with a right view of Jesus, not as just a dead savior somewhere, but with him as a king that we get to worship and obey now. And so simply put, the first step into Jesus' exaltation is to be J.R.R. Tolkienian about it. Like The first step is just the return of the king. Jesus is back on his throne. And if God did nothing more than that, that would be enough. Order would be restored. Jesus would be where he would belong. And that would be good news every day and forever. But again, there's two more steps in this exaltation. First, God gave Jesus the name that is above any other. And then third, at that name alone, every knee. And Emily brought this out. That's, that's, we can't comprehend that. Every single 
knee will bow on heaven, in heaven, on the earth and under the earth. And every literally single tongue will at some point confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. I, I don't think that, I, that any words I could, could say today could help us grasp the magnitude of how big an exaltation that is. Carol's explanation of the Greek got really close. But, but think of it like this. Who's, who are some big names today? Who are exalted people? Who are renowned people? Who are celebrated people today? LeBron James. LeBron James. Oprah. Oprah. That's it. They're the only two. <laughs> Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth. Yeah, it's a known name. Who else? What are some big names today? Uh, you yourself, Davis Dory. Okay. <laughs> Kate. Any other big names outside this room? And again, we can think through the different realms of society, and everyone has someone that everyone is trying to be like, right? In Rome in the first century, there was one big name. Anybody know what it was? Caesar. There was one name. Now, as with any other point in history, any other society, others tried to be big names. Magicians were actually a thing there. I couldn't tell you a big name magician today if my life depended on it. Philosophers were big names in first century Rome. Olympic athletes. So even back then, athletes, we can resonate with that one, LeBron. Um, like, like people sought to be big names. People were revered. But over all of them, there was one single cry in all of Rome, and it was Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. So Paul's words here, Jesus Christ is Lord, that's treason in Rome. There is one name, and we're declaring someone else to be what that one name alone claims to be. Beyond just being treason for Rome, it was blasphemy to the Jews that lived throughout the Roman Empire. I mentioned that, that throughout this, this text, uh, Paul is quoting the Old Testament. Now you put the next slide for me. I want to read to you one of his quotes um, from Isaiah 45. This is God, the Father, the, the, the single God of Israel, saying, I am God, there is no other. By my mouth I have sworn, from my mouth, or by, by myself I have sworn. I love that he says, by myself I have sworn. We can swear on a lot of things. There's nothing higher that God can swear on. So he's like, I swear on me that me to me alone every knee will bow sound familiar and every tongue will declare allegiance so for jews hearing paul's words this is blasphemy people are called to bow to god alone to the one monotheistic god and paul's claiming in this verse that jesus is equal to and one with God the Father. So while first century Romans bowed to Caesar, while Jew and Jews at the time, Israelites, bowed to Yahweh, while we in 21st century America, if we're really honest, bow to any number of lesser gods, as an aside, who or what are yours? In the midst of all of this, God says, no, Jesus is the name. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the one name, the one name before whom everyone will one day bow. He is 
the Messiah. He is the fulfillment. He is the promise. He is the pinnacle of power. He is good news. Y'all, Jesus alone will be worshipped in heaven, under the earth, and also on this earth, in part now and in fullness, when he brings a restored creation forever. And somehow, according to verse 11, in this weird Trinitarian dance that we don't understand, although an apple might help us a little bit, that truth, the worship of God the Son, which will only do by the power of God the Spirit in us, brings glory to God the Father. That's Jesus' three steps into humility, and God's three steps exalting Jesus beyond measure, to quote the grief that Carol read to us. In his example of humility, Jesus is exalted as the pinnacle of God's history-long promise and power. This is Paul's Jesus-centric poem. But... As we open communion, you can open your little little communion packets. I want to I want to invite us just to kind of go. So what? Why why does this matter? And there's a few different answers to that. One is that Jesus's example of humility gives us our own example for humility. That's some of what Matt led us in last weekend. As a second answer, Jesus's exaltation gives us a motive for our own countercultural life, and we'll pick that up in the next verses next week. So for today, why it matters, in part, you can play this out in there's plenty of myriad ways that it matters, but in part, I need us to see today that we don't have a Jesus that is distant from life, that was just dead on a cross, because a lot of times when followers of Jesus think about him, they think of him as, sure, yeah, he's alive somewhere, but in reality, in our daily functioning, we picture him dead on a cross maybe buried in a grave, distant from the life that we lead. Rather, church, we have a living and active presence of Christ in us today. Jesus is alive as the most exalted king forever, and by his spirit, he lives his life through us. Why does this matter? Why does his humility and his exaltation matter? It's because we live under a humble and exalted king. And so as we display him to the world around us, as we seek justice and peace, as we strive for good, as we share the good news, as we try to, to use common language in salt and light, as we try to apply the gospel to every facet of our lives and to cultural moments around us, all of these things that we do point to a greater king and point to a greater kingdom and point to a heavenly culture that we're creating around us. But we can't do that on our We have a living Christ in us and exalted on his throne, helping us do everything he calls us to. So again, that's a theme we'll return to and flesh out more next week, uh, starting in, in, in Philippians 1.27 and going through 2.18 next week. It's kind of one theme that Paul builds out. But just know this today. Jesus' death and resurrection, the, the, the words, the themes encapsulated in Paul's poem, this is the heart of Philippians, the letter we're walking through. This is the heart of history. This is the heart of the church. This is the very heart of God the Father. 
One author said, we will one day fully bow our knees to him. But church, we already do so. Every moment we live this Jesus-formed life today. So we're going to close. We've done this once before. There's different ways of doing communion. This may be unfamiliar for you, but we're going to close with a toast to the king. Uh, If we believe that Jesus is truly our king, he's one to whom we worship and bow down, and one to whom, if he literally walked in in bodily form, we would all stand and greet, or we would fall on our faces before. And so just as, as, as we celebrate other people, it is right and good sometimes just to celebrate Jesus. So we're just going to raise our bread-type products, and we're going to raise our juice-type products, and we're going to say to the king in a moment. So raise your bread. We're going to say to Jesus, who's the most humble servant, who is obedient to the point of death on a cross, and whose body was broken for you. And let's say to the king. Take and eat. And we take our juice and we hold it up in celebration to our king. And we say to Jesus, the highest exalted king at whose name we bow and whose life flows in us and through us by his spirit. And we say to the king. King Jesus, you are highly exalted. We could talk about it for hours and not even touch the most basic grasp of what that means. But we do worship you as king in spirit. Help us worship King Jesus as we leave this place in the, the moments that we're interacting with coworkers and kids and classmates and neighbors in the moments that we feel ultimately frustrated or angry or sad or apathetic or whatever it is, in the moments that we all will embody this next week, would you, by your power, create a heavenly culture in us and through us, not for ourselves or from ourselves, but for you, from you, and through you? Be our King Jesus. And all of God's people said...